Well, like I said just a moment ago, Merry Christmas. Um, Merry, thank you. Uh, I love Christmas time, probably one of my most favorite times of the year. Uh, we love Christmas, and what do we love around Christmas? Stories about Christmas, right? Um, and movies, I love watching these movies that come back this time of year, and I, I don't know, I'm a little biased, okay? I think the 80s movies are the best, all right? I can't get into the new stuff, right? It's too cheesy. You know, the new Hallmark stuff and the old stuff is good to take a nap to. You know, the Miracle on 34th Street and all that stuff, you know, just, um, I watched, let's see, Christmas Vacation, good. Yeah. Uh, I even watched Ernest Saves Christmas. That is a lost treasure. (laughs) But I love the Christmas story. Okay, that's one of the best movies of all time. You know, the little kid that just wants the Red Ryder BB gun, you know. And it's funny because I used to relate to the kid. You know, I used to think, whoa, yeah, he's right. You know, I feel the same way. But now I relate to the parents and they're just like, oh, you know, everything's going wrong and, and I'm angry and stuff like that, you know. But so if you don't know what the Christmas story is, you can Google it. If you don't know how to do that, I don't know how to help you. Um, but I, I Googled it and look, the first thing that comes up, it gives a, a snapshot of the movie. Okay, I'm going to read it to you. The beloved, this beloved holiday movie follows the wintry exploits of youngster Ralphie Parker, who spends most of his time dodging bullies and dreaming of his ideal Christmas gift, an official Red Rider Carbon Action 200 shot range model air rifle with a compass in the stock and this thing that tells time. Frequently at odds with his cranky dad, but comforted by his dotting mother. Listen to this. This is what stood out to me. Ralphie struggles to make it to Christmas Day with his glasses and his hope intact. Right? And as we think about Christmas, we think about hope. Christmas is about many things, but primarily the bottom line is Christmas is all about hope. And, you know, so many people are looking for that. So many people are searching for Hope, and that's what this whole series in Ruth has been about. The book of Ruth is a book of hope. It is a story of hope, and this story really has been very interesting so far. We've seen a, a sort of a roller coaster story. We've seen a story go from bad to good, and then from good to unknown. Anybody ever been there in your life? You know, you go through ups and downs, bad times, good times, and then times where you just don't know. You know, how many people like the unknown? I don't. It's not a good place for me to be. I like knowing things. I like facts. I like to see things that are tangible and place my hope in those things. Um, I think many of us are like that. The unknown is scary to us in a lot of ways. So in Ruth, uh, if you've been with us, you know that there was hope for Ruth. But here's the question. Would it last? Would this hope last? We were left wondering what would happen with her life, with her future. Remember last week, Ruth had proposed to Boaz, right? And he said that he would do it. He said yes, sort of in a weird way, didn't he? Um, But then he told Ruth that actually somebody else uh, was more qualified than he was to marry her. Somebody else was first in line before him to take over her family's rights and to redeem Ruth there was a closer relative so we were left thinking what would happen all right this is sort of unknown I know you can read 
the next chapter in your Bible and see what happened. But um, imagine being in her life. Imagine being in her shoes. A lot of time goes by in between words. How would this story end? Would this story of hope continue? Would this story last? And you might be saying this, well, why Ruth at Christmas, right? Um, This is more of a Christmas story than you may think. And what we're going to do is we're going to read through this. If you're visiting with us, we're going to read through the entire chapter because it really is a story. It reads like a story. And uh, then we'll get together and explain some things uh, at the end. So, Ruth 4.1. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. So remember, before, Ruth sort of pursued Boaz, didn't she? Ruth sort of went after Boaz. Boaz never made any moves, so Ruth took matters into her own hands. And now Boaz was going to do what he could to make good on his promise to Ruth. Boaz went out and he immediately got busy. This is the next morning. He got busy. He wanted to settle this matter. And he went to the town gate, which was the place for commerce and the place for meeting. It was sort of like Hardy's and the town hall all together. You know, you ate and you had a good time and you done business there. So that's where he went. And, you know, it's interesting, God's providence. Just as he got there, just as he got to the gate, he saw the man he was talking to Ruth about, the closest relative, right? And he approached him and asked him in a very nice way to, hey, you know, come here and have a seat. Verse 2, Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and said, sit here. And they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So picture this. Boaz got the relative to sit, right? That's one thing. And then he went and got 10 other people, 10 elders of the town, 10 leaders in the community, and he told them to have a seat. Boaz has to have some power, doesn't he? Has to have some authority. He is a man on a mission. And then he tells the relative in front of everyone, in front of all these people, that Naomi has come back. She has come back from Moab. Now, you think this guy didn't know that? No, I mean, we learned from reading before that everybody sort of knew that about her, that she had come back. So what is Boaz trying to do here? He wanted everyone to be on the same page. He wanted to make sure that everybody knew what was going on, and he wanted to have witnesses for the transaction that was about to take place. So Boaz brought up uh, the fact that Naomi, as a widow, needed to sell her land. Verse 4. This is Boaz speaking. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if not, if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. So Boaz was making a business proposal to the relative. I want you to see that there. He's presenting him with the opportunity to do his duty as a guardian redeemer. He's saying, here's the situation. Here's the need. Here's an opportunity, and you are the one that could do something about it. You can redeem the land for Naomi. The thing is, though, the process of redemption was up to the individual. Nobody was forced to redeem anything. The redeemer wasn't made to redeem anything. It was all voluntary. 
It was, it was a moral obligation, not a legal obligation, you see. So Boaz, in front of everyone, he sort of calls this guy out, doesn't he? He calls out the guardian redeemer and he says, hey, look, it's your turn to step up. It's your time to step up. Go ahead and do it, if you will. The last part of verse 4. I will redeem it, he said. All right. So if you're reading into this and you're sort of attached to Ruth and Boaz getting together, you read this and you're like, oh, man, I can't believe that. Right? So this guy says, I will do it. The man quickly responded, and who knows what his intentions were. Maybe he w- I think he was embarrassed by being in front of all of the people, right? And he wanted to look like he was doing the manly thing, the right thing. Who knows? But he agreed to redeem the land from Naomi. He said, I will do it. But here's the thing. Boaz wasn't finished yet with his proposal. There was more to it. Verse 5. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. So Boaz quickly let the guy know that, hey, there's a caveat to this deal. You know, since you are the guardian redeemer, not only are you responsible for the land or the property, you also are responsible for the family line continuing on. That's what you're responsible for. He was to redeem the land from Naomi, but he also was to make sure that Ruth was brought into his own family and given the opportunity to continue in the family line. That was his responsibility. Verse 6, at this, the guardian redeemer said, then I can't, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. So look, after he initially agreed after he quickly agreed he backed out after hearing that he would have to redeem Ruth as well he decided not to pursue this issue any further at all now what this man was thinking isn't really clear but one thing is clear is that he is only thinking about himself right about endangering his own estate even though he was the rightful guardian redeemer he wasn't really acting like one was he So he said, I can't do this. And instead, he passed the right of redemption on to Boaz. And now it was Boaz's turn in front of all these people to step up and to be the guardian redeemer. Verse 8. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself. And he removed his sandal. So that's just sort of a weird custom there. You know, we do, we used to do a handshake, you know, for transactions. Uh, Now we do everything on paper or electronically. Uh, there they did shoes. I don't know. Some of you ladies know how much you cherish shoes. So um, that's what they did. When they made a transaction, they exchanged shoes. The person selling took the shoe off. So that's what this guy did. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all of the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilian, and Malon. So Boaz announced to everybody there at the gate, everybody in the presence of this, you have all seen and heard what has transpired. You saw this man take off his Birkenstock and give it to me. Right? You saw that, didn't you? Right? He's just making sure everybody's on the same page. This is official. This is a done deal. Boaz is a shoe-in. Boaz had officially bought the land for Naomi 
but he also got the hand of Ruth. Verse 10, I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are my witnesses. You know, Boaz seems really excited here, doesn't he? I mean, he's excited things are finally going his way. He makes it a point here to let all the people know about Ruth, about how he feels about her. She's the Moabite, right? The wife of Malon will be his wife. He wasn't ashamed of her. Look, many of us in our time and culture, we would be ashamed to admit this in front of everybody. Boaz wasn't. He wanted to let everybody know that she was his and his feelings for her were strong. So here's where things get really interesting. Boaz redeems Ruth, verse 11. Then the elders and all the people at the gate, so everybody there you know, that saw this take place, responded to Boaz and said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah, and be famous in Bethlehem. All right, so the elders in the town and all the people around offered this prayer of blessing upon Ruth and Boaz. You think that, I mean, in our culture, in our time today, these people would have been like, this is not going to go anywhere, right? This is terrible. Why are you getting together? This doesn't make sense. Instead, they come together, they unite, and they offer a prayer of blessing upon this union. They were not just approving of it, but they were wishing blessing upon it, that Ruth would be like Rachel and Leah. And I don't know if you know who those ladies are, but they are the mothers of the 12 sons of Israel. They are the mothers of the pillars and the foundation of the nation of Israel. And then they offered a prayer of blessing upon Boaz. And look, Boaz was already well known. He was already very respected in the community. But they said, may you... Be famous in Bethlehem. I want you to pay attention to that phrase there. These people had hope that great things would come from this union between Boaz and Ruth. And little did they know how famous this union would be. And we'll talk about more about that in just a moment. But as Boaz made good on his promise to Ruth, we don't have to wait long to see what happened, right? The, the author of Ruth goes right into it, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her, enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. So the author just gets right to the point here. Right? Uh, Boaz and Ruth got married. Nine months went by like that, and Ruth had a son. And apparently she wasn't able to conceive before. She wasn't able to have children, but miraculously, like the Lord always can, but sometimes does, he opened her womb and allowed her to have a son. And this was so important here because the guardian redeemer benefit had come full circle, you see. The legacy of the family would continue, but now it would continue through the son of Ruth and Boaz. And look, this is a great time for joy and celebration. Not only for Ruth, not only for Boaz, but for who? 
Naomi, yeah, we kind of forgot about her, didn't we, in this whole thing? She started off in the story losing just about everything. It even got to the point where she changed her name to Bitter, right? Because that's what her life had become. But now, her life was completely different. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. So the women who were at first talking about Naomi, you can go back and read uh, chapter 1, chapter 2. As Naomi comes back into Bethlehem, everybody's, all the women are sort of saying, is that Naomi? Is that her? Right? They're sort of talking about her in a negative way. Now they were praising the Lord for what he did in her life. God brought life back into the life of Naomi. Right? And then there's this prayer that the women offer. May he, that is the child, become famous throughout Israel. So just back up just a second. There was a prayer that the family of Boaz would be famous throughout Bethlehem that we read just a minute ago. And now we see a prayer that the child will become famous throughout Israel. So really, I want you to get this picture. For everyone, there's this great hope that this child will be famous, that this child will turn out to be something great. Everybody is thinking that. Everybody is wishing that. Everybody's praying that. Verse 15. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. Imagine that. Imagine how Naomi felt at this moment. Imagine how the family felt together. And then I want you to get a snapshot of this world. In a world that was characterized by famine, by death, by barrenness, there's birth here. There's new life. There's celebration. There is hope. There's hope. And there isn't just hope for a family continue, but through this union, a great hope is given for all of Israel. You see, the prayer that the child would become famous throughout Bethlehem and famous throughout Israel would come true in royal, royal, royal fashion. Verse 17. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and of course they're not, Naomi didn't have the son Ruth did, but you see, Naomi had a, had a future, right? Her family would continue. It's Ruth's son, so they're celebrating that, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Wow. <laughs> so get this. There's this celebration. The last half of this chapter has been a celebration of a child. There's a celebration that a birth has taken place. A child is born, and then the author gives, goes right into the names, and there's so much in names. Obed, I mean servant. Kind of sounds like a Star Wars name, doesn't it? Obed. But his name isn't nearly as important as his grandson's name. You see, the son of Boaz and Ruth, Obed, turned out to be the grandfather of David, King David. Not just King, King, the most famous king, the most celebrated king to this day of all of Israel. 
You mean to tell me this soap opera of a story turned out like this? Yeah, it did. I mean, this, to this unlikely union, God brought about the kingdom of Israel. Are you kidding me? Yeah, that's how God works. That's how, what he does. He does miraculous things. He does things we can't see. He does things we can't comprehend. He does great things. Yes, he did that through the union of a Moabite and Boaz brought about the kingdom of Israel. What a great story. You know, you still might be saying, well, what does this have to do with Christmas, you know? Well, this is so much more than a story about hope for Bethlehem or even Israel, but this is a story about hope for the entire world. You see, many of you know this, but through David would come Jesus. Through David would come Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus, the Son of God, was a direct descendant of Ruth and Boaz. He was. And so look, the story of Ruth is telling us this. We can read Ruth and say, oh, that's cute. That happened a long time ago. But no, we need to read ourselves into that story because it's talking about us. It's pointing to a future for us. The story of Ruth is telling us that there will be a redeemer. There will be a king. There will be a savior who brings life. There will be a savior who brings future. There will be a child that brings hope to the world. The story of Ruth and Boaz took place where? Bethlehem. And around Christmas time, we turn our attention to the same small town where we celebrate the birth of another child, don't we? We're all here this morning because of him. The birth of Jesus. And what's even more interesting is that Obed, Ruth, and Boaz's son turned out to be a shepherd who taught his son Jesse to be a shepherd, who taught his son David to be a shepherd. And wouldn't you know that through God's sovereignty and providence and just downright being God and being cool, I get excited about this, sorry. A great announcement was made to some shepherds outside of Bethlehem. Luke 2.8. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. Now, this isn't in God's word, but it is in Jewish tradition. Uh, Many Jews, many people believe that these same fields were the fields of Boaz. Okay. Now, if your Bible geekometer isn't going off, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of who? David. There would not be a town of David if it wasn't for Ruth and Boaz. Ruth's great-grandson was in this great announcement. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah. He is the Lord. You know, the announcement that the angels made to the shepherds was good news for who? Everybody. Not just Bethlehem. Not just Israel. But for all people. You know, Mary may have given birth 
to him, but the angel tells the shepherds this, he has been born to you. Born to you. He was given for all people. He was given so that not just one family might be redeemed, but the entire world might be redeemed. You see, the Redeemer had come so all the world could be saved, so all the world could experience joy, so that the entire world could have hope. The story of Ruth is so much more than a story of Ruth. It's a story of you and me. It's a story of all of us, what God would do for all of us. He would send his son as savior, as redeemer of all the world. On Christmas, we look to Bethlehem and we celebrate the birth of a child. We celebrate the fact that hope has come into the world for us all. And here's the great thing about this great hope is that it lasts. It lasts. It's not a hope that's unknown. It's not a hope that's uncertain. Hope in Jesus is not momentary. Here one minute, gone the next, you know. It's not a hope that fades. It's not a hope that never comes to fruition. It's a hope that is everlasting. Luke 1. Now this is an angel visiting Mary. Luke 1.31. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you were to call him Jesus. Jesus means the Lord saves. He will be great. You remember what the prayer was for Boaz and their, their family? That he would be great. That, that their son would be famous. Right? Jesus will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father. David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. Forever. His kingdom will never end. Look, the rule and the reign of Jesus will be great. It will be powerful. But here's the amazing thing. It will never, ever end. Never. It will be forever. What does that tell us? Hope in Jesus is everlasting. So many people put their hope in a lot of things that simply don't last. Maybe that's you. You know, uh-oh, coming down off stage. Um, I told my kids, this is our Christmas tree. We, we got cut back this year. I'm kidding. Um, I love Christmas trees, don't you? Real ones. We've had, we've had a real tree several times. Nothing beats a real tree, right? The look, the smell, right? Um, I love it. Some of my best memories are around a Christmas tree. Maybe that's you too. And we spend so much time decorating it and making sure it, looks good, right? We, we position it, making sure it's in the right place in our great room or our family room. We, we move everything else and we make this the centerpiece of the moment, the centerpiece of the time. And how long is it like that? A couple weeks? And then what? You toss it. You get rid of it. This thing has already made a mess up here. 
the needles are falling off and it's drying out, as pretty as that is, it doesn't last. And then how do we feel? Let's be honest. After Christmas, how do you feel? Some of you go into depression mode. I'm telling you. And for some of you, it's funny, right? For some of you, it's not. Like Christmas is a hard time for you to get through. I wonder, do we do that with our lives? Do we place our hope in things that just don't last? Do we put a lot of emphasis behind things that have no lasting value? And then once they're gone, our life changes. And we sort of lose hope. Where do you place your hope? Do you place it in yourself? A lot of people do. A lot of people place their hope in themselves that they can make it through. They're strong enough to get by. They can last as long as I'm in control, I'm good. You know what? That works for a while until it doesn't work. Um, I'm forgetting things. Anybody there? What was I saying? But you know, you, you know you, when you get older, right? Your mind's not as sharp as it used to be. Are you going to put your hope in yourself? Really? My wife's telling me that she can't see at night, so she's having trouble driving. I'm like, okay, Granny. <laughs> Just going to drive through the day for the next 40 years? You, you can't put your hope in yourself because yourself doesn't last. Your body doesn't. No. You're going to put your hope in your family? Some of you might say that. Yeah, my family. It's my rock. Yeah. Yeah, tell that to somebody whose family member beats them. Whose family member despises them. You know, eventually your family member may let you down. Even if you've got a loving rock-solid family. You're not going to have family members with you forever. And that might be one of the reasons that holiday seasons are so hard for you. You're going to put your hope in this world? Hey, just take a look around. Things don't look like they used to. Things are not like they used to be. 20, 30, 40, 50 years ago? No. You going to put your hope in the stock market? Yeah, don't do that. Don't do that. So many people have lost their entire life savings in one moment. And I can't tell you how many articles I've read of people taking their own lives because their hope was wrapped up in their retirement, in their finances. Even the experts tell you to what? Diversify because the markets are unreliable. All right. Thanks for being honest at least. You going to put your hope in the government? I'm not even going to mention that one. (laughs) I'm not going to say anything about it. You all know 
what I'm talking about. It's like, you know, God's bringing us to the point that says, hey, you're going to trust in me, right? You're not going to put your trust in anybody else. You will trust in me. No. You know, we can place our hope in a lot of things, but hope in Jesus is the only hope that is lasting. It is. And look, we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be worried about the unknown because why? Our Savior came to be known. He came to know us. So why fear the unknown when you have an everlasting God that's in control? We don't have to worry about our lives because our Redeemer has come to give us a better life and a better future. The story of Christmas is a story of hope. Hope has come. And hope in Jesus is everlasting. Now I'm going to pray. I want to ask everybody to bow, their, bow your head. You might be here today and, and you don't have a relationship with Jesus. You've never given your life to the Lord. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And I want you to understand something. It's not the prayer that saves you. It's your heart. It's your commitment to the Lord. Uh, the Word of God tells us in Romans that if we confess our mouths that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. If God is being real to you right now and you've never given your life to the Lord, would you do that today? Through your prayer and through your heart, would you give your life into the eternal hope of Jesus Christ? And for those of us that are already Christians, where are you placing your hope? In things that don't last? It's good to enjoy things. It's good to celebrate things. It's good to love things. But I would encourage you, as we learn today, hope in Jesus is the only hope that lasts forever. We can love things as long as we hope in Jesus. Father, this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this story in Ruth that gives us a story of hope. Not just a momentary hope, but a lasting hope. And we see a great story through Ruth and Boaz, but we also see a greater story to the entire world, and it's the story of your son, Jesus Christ, coming into this world to bring life, to bring love, and to bring hope. This morning, for the heart that is looking to you, that doesn't know you, but wants to. Father, I pray that you would hear their prayer this morning. If that's you, just pray this prayer with me. Father, God, I give you my heart today. Your son Jesus came to this world to bring me hope and to bring me life, and I see that this morning. I repent of my sin. I give you my past. And I ask for your forgiveness through your son, Jesus. And Father, the best way I know how, I will commit my life to you, to loving you, to having a relationship with you.
Father, help me, strengthen me, and encourage me along this new journey that I've taken. And I thank you for saving me today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.